Welcome to Life Church. We are an ex 242 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through His Word and by His Spirit. Your Bible open at 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to be following my notes fairly closely as well this evening. So if you have them downloaded, you've been sent them from Lucas this morning. It would be helpful for you to read when we listen and we read at the same time. It increases our memory recollection, so it's a good thing to do. But just as we start, let me give you a little bit of a, a word about context. Context. It's something that appears a lot in studies about theology and the Bible. What's the context? What's the context? And when I began to take my own Bible study particularly seriously, I began sort of formally training in Bible study and theology back in 2002. So it's been a few years now, 20 years by my maths. I used to kind of get this feeling that context was just something people grasped at as a concept to try to find a way, often quite a tenuous way, to, su- to support what they really wanted the Scriptures to teach. For those of you who have kids, mine, give you an insight into a pastor's household, mine fight a lot. I think I mentioned this last week, actually. And I know that when they both come running to me, I'm going to get context. One of them's going to say, this is what happened. The bit that you didn't see was X, Y, and Z. And that context will support their story in order for me to support their position. And then the other child will come up and they will give me their version of history, the bit I didn't see in order to support their narrative, that I might side with their perspective on events. So context, I often think, is something that people grasp at, grasp at in order to try and find some thread of information which they can leverage to support their position. But actually, context is a hugely important part of biblical interpretation. For those of you who read Jesus' words where he says, if anyone looks at somebody in a lustful way, you know, they need to pluck their eye out. Suddenly we want context on Jesus' words. Now we're going to get on to men's, uh, sorry, we're going to get on to women's ministry. But for men, when we read that Paul circumcised Timothy as an adult, we suddenly we want context. Is this a general teaching, or are there there some specifics about the occasion which we need to better understand? Otherwise, we will start calling Lucas Rabbi Lucas, and church initiation would look very, very different. So context is basically information that we can glean both from within the text and other sources 
that speak about the situation which the, the, the text is kind of talking about to help us get a fuller picture, a fuller understanding of what might be being taught. Let me give you an example from the scriptures with reference to women's ministry. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11:5, it says, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. What's Paul going on about? Well, Paul doesn't give us a great deal of detail in the text itself. But out of verses like this, many people have come up with ideas about with church. It kind of, it looked like Royal Ascot. Every woman was wearing a hat. Put your hand up if you grew up in a church where women wore hats. Yeah. Well, we don't anymore, do we? Because of context. Now, here's some context for that particular verse. This is not a directly kind of um, teaching into 1 Timothy, but I just want to give you some, some other illustrations of how context is important. Philo of Alexander, Alexandria, uh, who was a Jew, not a Christian, lived in between 20 BC and 50 AD. He wrote a treatise in which he talked about the Mosaic laws. This is on the first page of your notes. And he writes this commentary about Numbers 5.18. And he says, And the priest shall take the barley and offer it to the woman and take away from her headdress, sorry, take away from her her headdress on her head, that she might be judged with her head bare, deprived of the symbol of modesty, which all those women were accustomed to wear who were completely blameless. So by reading a non-Christian writer from the period that the first century writers would have uh, been writing in themselves, we get an insight into the fact that women wearing head coverings was a symbol, a publicly recognized symbol of modesty. So when we want to reconstruct an argument for why Paul may be passionate about coverings of head, for example, we can come to the conclusion, I think quite reasonably, and there's a whole lot more to this argument, but I think quite reasonably, that Paul in his efforts to protect the witness of the church, he didn't want women's freedom to be misunderstood by people coming into the church and thinking these ladies were throwing off all kinds of social conventions and they were walking around like immodest women. So the Apostle Paul, sensitive to his context, he's writing in such a way that the people who were in the time and period when these letters were written to the churches, they would have well understood. But looking back 2,000 years, it's very, very difficult to get a, a clear understanding unless we look more deeply into what might have been intended through those words. And also, we can glean from other sources that it was quite typical for women in pagan cult, and also it was it was, and according to some sources, not every source, but some sources, that women allowing their hair to kind of uh, to be visible and not wearing a head covering was a sign that that woman may well be a prostitute. So if you're a woman going into a first century church and you're getting taught that you are equal with men, you are 
completely free in Christ Jesus. And they think, oh, wonderful. I can get rid of this headdress in this very hot Middle Eastern heat. And Paul's saying, whoa, 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 no, 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 we don't do that here. Because if people come in, they're going to get the wrong idea about you. And I care about the witness of this church. So we begin to construct an argument based on context. There are cultural things like that. There are also understanding of things such as language. In 1 Timothy 5.22, Paul says to Timothy, don't be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now, I have heard a missionary to Africa say, what Paul meant by that was don't go quickly to the ministry of praying for somebody with laying on your hands because you don't know if they've got a demon. And if they have a demon and you touch them, that demon will go out of them and into you. I was like, what? But you can read around quite a, a number of different sources. And in fact, I'm going to uh, show you a Christian source uh, in a moment on a PowerPoint. Not only have you got a whiteboard, but you have PowerPoint too. You are spoiled, absolutely. Laying on of hands was a phrase to talk about commissioning for ministry. It was a metonym. It was a way of speak. So when Paul is saying, do not be hasty on the laying of hands, in fact, some Bible translations say now, do not be hasty in appointing someone to a position of leadership. They don't put the laying on of hands. Because they understand that those literal words could be misunderstood unless you understood the context. Context is important. So let me, before we get deep into 1 Timothy chapter 2, let me give you some broader context from the Bible itself. I'm not going into extra biblical sources now uh, about what the Bible says about women and men. I'm clicking. Okay. So here in Jesus' ministry, we have this event where Mary and Martha received Jesus to their home. So it must have been quite a big home to support him and those who were traveling with him. Some people suggest that Mary and Martha were um, sort of wealthy heirs of deceased parents. They had money, they were young, but they'd, they'd kind of accepted Jesus as Messiah and they were playing their part in the support of his ministry. Now, most of you will know this story and you get this uh, interchange between Martha and Jesus because Mary had chosen to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen. And Martha petitions Jesus to get Mary to sit up and come and help with the preparation of food. So it seems quite simple in the interpretation of that, that really, you know, Martha was... She was the kind of person who was, she was probably the older sister of the two, actually. That's why she took that initiative. But she, she was concerned that she was being left to all those kind of menial tasks by herself. But there is a, 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 writer, new, a writer on the New Testament, this guy, Kenneth E. Bailey. I highly recommend uh, this book. He, he ministered in the Middle East for 40 years and understands Middle Eastern culture very, very well. And he explains that the subtext of Martha's question to Jesus wasn't because she needed more help in the kitchen, but because she was embarrassed by Mary taking the position that was traditionally only available to men to sit at the feet of a rabbi. 
Now, you think, oh, wow, what the, what the big, what's the big deal about all of this? Now, social conventions are important. Imagine if, for example, one of you said, Dave, um, he need to... And I said, okay, let's go and stay at your house for a bit, thank you. And then I bring my bedding and so forth, and I say, where's your bedroom? Say, so, no, 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 there's a spare room down there. No, I, you know, it's my social convention to sleep in your room. You'd be like, no, no, no. <laughs> it's not my social convention that you sleep in my room. So there's certain boundaries we just understand without having to say anything. You just don't cross. It's just not right. And this is what Martha is experiencing here with Mary taking a seat at the feet of Jesus. She's taking the posture of a disciple. Now, she's not preaching and teaching here. She's not an elder in a church, but we are already witnessing Jesus being comfortable with a woman in a traditionally male space. Jesus accepts this. Now, he says, Martha, you're worried about a lot of stuff, and Mary's taking the better place. It wasn't because it wasn't because Mary was kind of there all gooey-eyed, you know, singing, my Jesus, my Savior, while she sat at the feet of Jesus, he was cool with it, and he recognized that she's taking the posture of disciple, and that was okay. That was okay. Okay, let's now go back in the Bible a bit. Let's go to Genesis, very creation uh, events itself. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. Something, uh, some translations say humanity in our image. According to our likeness, they will have dominion. Some translations say they will rule. Right in the early pages of Genesis, before there's a fall, before there's a serpent tempting Eve and influencing the backdrop of Paul's instructions in 1 Timothy, saying that Eve was deceived, we get this account where God is sharing reign, rule, and dominion, leadership, with men and women. When it goes on to say it's, it's, it's not good for man to be alone, what was God's response to that observation? It wasn't let me give him a companion. We think, oh, you know, poor Adam, he was wandering around with the bears and the cats and the dogs down in the dumps because he had no one to really chat with. God's response to Adam's aloneness wasn't companionship, it was help. God wasn't bringing alongside Adam someone simply for him to chat with over a cup of tea and coffee. He was bringing someone alongside to share in the role of having dominion over all creation. So right in the first pages of Genesis, God's kingdom... God shares his reign and rule with men and with women. Okay. There is a reinforcement of this in the New Testament. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. Therefore, I endure, this is Paul speaking, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Who is the we? All who are in Christ Jesus. And we know there's no male nor female. 
So Paul doesn't seem to be uncomfortable at the consummation of God's kingdom when things are being wrapped up and God is delivering us into the reign of his son, that reigning and ruling as it was depicted at the beginning of Genesis was a shared experience that both men and women will be involved in leading in the kingdom of God. Okay, let's keep going. There's more. Right back in the going, jumping back into the Old Testament again. Now, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. So back in the Old Testament, again, bouncing back, now it was clearly, clearly it was the, it was the majority of leadership roles were given to men. And I think there is reason for that. My argument this evening isn't that men uh, uh, and women aren't different. But in fact, it's their difference that means that they both together need to be involved in leading. It's not that men and women are the same, therefore they should lead. It's men and women are different, therefore they should lead. So we have this account of Deborah, although it's, it's, a, it's a, bit, a bit of an anomaly in the kind of chronology of the Old Testament. Nevertheless, it, it's there. There was a, a sense of judging, leading in that context in Israel. Now, here's one that still gets some coverage in, in, in biblical debates today. Greet and, and Andronicus and Junia, and I put in brackets Junias. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners, they are well known to or among the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. So this is Paul at the end of Romans. It seems to be the most boring chapter in Romans. It's kind of like, you know, Paul's just signing off saying, you know, thank you so and so. It's like at the end of a wedding, you thank everybody, you know, thank you to the lady who brought the flowers, thank you to the lady who brought the cake, make sure everyone gets their mention so no one feels left out. So Paul goes through this, this, this run of names, and we're going to see another one in a moment called Phoebe. Now, Junia is the female. Junias is the male of the same name. So the first point of contention in this verse is whether Paul is speaking of Junia, female, or Junias, male. Now, for me, the weight of biblical scholarship supports that it is Junia, the female who is, in fact, uh, uh, being written about here, not Junias, a male. In fact, N.T. Wright, who's a, a, a prolific scholar on the New Testament, he said he had a friend who was involved in the NIV Bible translation when they discussed this verse. What way are we going to write this? And he said those who were favoring Junias could not provide a single scrap of historical, critical uh, uh, um, uh, evidence to suggest why it should be translated Juni, Junias. Now, the next part of contention is, even if you accept that as a female, what is Paul saying about this woman, Junia? Now, in, you can read through a number of different translations. Get your Bible app tonight with your version Bible app and go through a few different translations. Some translations will say... They, the Sandronica and Juni, are well known to the apostles or among the apostles. So some people's argument is that even if this is a female along with Andronicus that Paul is talking about, then this Junia was just well known to the apostles. So basically, if you were to rumble into a, you know, a, a meeting where the apostles were, were gathered and you say, do you know Andronica and Junius? Junia? They would say, yeah, we, know, we know, know them well. Or 
it could be translated well known among the apostles. Like if you to go into that same meeting, the gathering of the apostles, you might find Andronica and Junia there among that group. So the debate goes, and it will rumble on for some years, and there are very learned people on both sides of the arguments. Is Paul saying there that even if this is a, a, a woman, Junia, was she known to the apostles, or was she known as one of the apostles? Another part of Romans, in fact, right at the beginning, says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Sancria. Now, in my CSB translation of the scriptures, it talks about how Phoebe is a servant. But servant in the Greek is diakonos, from which we get deacon. When we read through Timothy, we hear about people who are in the... There were apostles, and there were overseers, and there were elders, and there were deacons. Those are the kind of four... Didn't, did I do four there? Four fingers, four. Four main roles in the church. So some translations get a bit squeaky bum with it all and think, well, no, I'm not going to say that she was a deacon because I don't want women getting the idea that they can be deacons in the church. So I'm just going to call it servant because it's the same word. So that's why in some translations we have, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in St. Korea. Role, recognized role, and we're going to get on to why that is important when we get uh, into Timothy in a moment, or whether she was a, just serving without position, title, and official label. So here we are in Chalcedon. Now, how we, where we jump into from and this? Now, we've moved from the Bible now to a one of, in fact, the most famous church councils in the whole of history. So when the Bible was produced, it, it, it was produced in the first century. Some people will argue some of it were written later. They're Luddites who so ignore those types of people who suggest that. But then after so many years, the church were debating amongst themselves, so what is it we believe about Jesus? Was he a God or was he a prophet? What, what was he? What's this Holy Spirit? Is it, is, is it really God or is it, just a, is it just a way? So there were various councils which were basically kind of gatherings of church leaders to decide what the official teaching of the church will be. In fact, some years earlier at Nicaea, when they were uh, beginning the, or really getting deep into the debate of whether Jesus was fully uh, God, fully divine, Nicholas, who we get the, uh, the person Saint Nicholas, he punched a guy in the face who denied that Jesus wasn't God, a guy called Arius. And now in the Catholic Church, he's the patron saint of boxing. Did you know that? So don't get on the wrong side of Father Christmas because he might hear you. So this is a very famous and well-attested um, creed that came out of the early church. So in 451, now it says here, a woman shall not be ordained, the original Greek was laying on of hands, as I mentioned that earlier, as a deaconess under 40 years of age. Okay, what's so interesting about that? They assumed women could be appointed through the official laying on of hands, a commissioning. You didn't commission people just to do a bit of tidying up around the church. 
Imagine you being part of the church here, and you, was, you just saw a bit of litter on the back. I'm going to pick that up. Luke said, stop. Meeting of the elders. We just need to lay on hands on you first and make sure there's an official. Quick, Instagram it. Get it out there. We have somebody else who's commissioned to work and serve in the church. That would be a nonsense. This isn't the only document that we a number of church leaders over the first few hundred years commissioned women in the role of deacon in the church. Now, we don't have women being, uh, lots of women, uh, we can get from the text talking about um, uh, lots of, there's, there's none I can find of women being appointed as elders, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But certainly deacons, it seems to be that it was understood and accepted in the early church that women could be made deacons. Let's move on from that. I had one more verse, but time's moving on. So, right, now we come to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Just to give you a reminder where this fits in history, my writing in my own mind is always neater on these things than it actually turns out to be. It looks like I've got some sort of neurological problem. I can't quite write straight. Okay, just to give you a very brief overview of how Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus fit into the timeline of Paul's life. So this is the book that we're reading here, 1, 2 Timothy, and then we're going to look at Titus in a couple of weeks' time. So when was Jesus born? Most people go, what? Zero. Okay. Well, zero doesn't actually exist. <laughs> that's, a, that's a nonsense. It went from 1 BC to 1 AD. But the timing that we have wrong, uh, today is wrong. We can quite... Uh, clearly worked that out. There was a guy who was called Dionysius, who was a Bulgarian monk, who gave us uh, the idea that Jesus was born in what we think now is what we call zero, and he did that in the sixth century. He gave no evidence for why it was when it was, he, he said that it was. But in what we now know, what we call 4 BC, Herod died, and we know that Herod was around at the time when Jesus um, was born. And in 6 BC, we know that there was a, a census, a large census in the Roman Empire. So Jesus was born somewhere probably around 6 to 4 BC. So that means, assuming he starts, that Luke says, around the age of time in 27 AD, and then we get Paul's conversion about four to seven years after the birth of the church and Jesus' ascension, which means the Acts of the Apostles covers this period around here, 27 AD. I'm being approximate. Okay, we can't know for sure exactly. Between 27 AD and around 58 to 60 AD, where Paul was on trial in Rome. And Acts, I didn't mention this last week, but it's important to know, that Acts was written as an account to support Paul at his trial in Rome. So that's why it ends with Paul under house arrest. But church history teaches us that it's unlikely that he died at that trial in Rome. So the pages of Acts, they cover this period of time here. There is another period of time unaccounted for, which Acts doesn't record for us because it wasn't written for that. 
that goes on for another period of time up until when it's likely that Paul was beheaded under Emperor Nero around 64 to 65 AD. And this is this period of time here when the pastoral, what we call the pastoral epistles, were written. So 1, 2, Timothy and Titus, Philemon and so forth, written up here. So these cover a period of time that you can't correlate with the Acts of the Apostles because they happened after the Acts of the Apostles. So we don't we don't have all of the other historical information from the, the Bible to, um, to corroborate what is going on here in the pastoral epistles. But let me now read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. So Paul says to Timothy, Therefore I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or argument. Were there any men who didn't lift up their hands this evening? Naughty, naughty. Also, the women are to dress themselves in modest clothing, with decency and good sense, not with elaborate hairstyles. Let me just make sure none of you ladies have got elaborate hairstyles. Mm, one or two of you may be a little bit, a little bit elaborate. Um, they shouldn't have gold, pearls, or expensive apparel. Only fake jewelry will do in this church. Thank you, ladies. All right. <laughs> if, you didn't, if you didn't buy it from Monsoon, get rid of it. Okay, but with good works that is proper for women who profess to worship God. A woman, here we go, this is the most contentious bit. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she must remain quiet. Okay, so Paul has actually talked about how he wants people to behave in church. He's talked about it a couple of times in Corinth, about women being silent in church, and a bit about head coverings as well. So we've got 1 Corinthians 15, and then we've got the 1 Corinthians 11 passage to go on as well. But here he says he wants women to remain quiet and in submission. Okay, let me, before we get on to Paul's defense of what he was saying, we need to, need to clarify a few things. Okay, so he talked about men and women, and then he moves from the collective noun to the singular. He moves to a woman. And so he moves from this kind of collective sense. I'm talking to men, I'm talking to women, now I don't, but now I don't want a woman. So we can't build too much of an argument about that, but there's this kind of shift in the language of Paul's. It's like he's, he's moving from general teaching to dealing with something quite specific. And in fact, when he talks about, I do not, woman, uh, do not want a woman to have authority, the, the Greek there is more forceful than it comes out in my translation. In fact, in some translations, it says usurp authority. Basically, I don't want it to start forcibly taking authority over men. It was like a, a, almost like a military phrase. It was like pulling rank. It's like, I don't want any women to be going around and trying to pull rank over a man. So why would Paul be particularly concerned about that? And why would he write to Timothy about that? Because Paul and Timothy, as you'll realize from this uh, diagram here, and in fact, when uh, Timothy was converted, he's converted somewhere around maybe that bit there. Paul had, had ample chance to instruct Timothy in what he thought about women. Timothy would have known Paul's position on 
women. I think the reason why it's repeated here is because Paul is trying to say something specific to the location. He doesn't want, he doesn't say, I don't want women to be equal or anything. He said, I don't want to try and take authority over. And that's something quite different to, I don't want them to try to pull up and take a place of equal authority. And when he says in verse 11, a woman is to learn quietly with full submission, submission to who? Submission to God. Don't insert man into the sentence. That's not mentioned. Not there it isn't. You can say, oh, yes, but what about this whole thing about headship? Okay, but we're dealing with this verse. So Paul is saying, I don't want, I want women to be quiet as they're being taught. I want them to remain in a place of submission to who? I think the force of the argument here is submission to God because it's to God that all of this cultural intervention that Paul is bringing here is about showing reverence to God in the way that you dress and the way that men are. Why? Because it was designed to bring reverence to God. Who's the submission to? Who are, who are the men who are lifting holy hands in submission to? It's submission to God. So my understanding here is that the submission here is not to men but to God. Now he comes out with this argument that's just, it baffles people to this day because some of what Paul goes on to say seems completely unmatched to parts of his argument if the argument here is to put women in a place of subservience to men. So, First of all, Paul says this. Now, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Well, actually, Adam was deceived. <laughs> actually, you can read Genesis in any translation you like. He took the fruit too. His silence was an abomination. No leadership from the man. And the woman was deceived and transgressed. Sorry, it says, I've missed a part there, sorry, verse 13. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And then it was Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Actually, the rights of firstborn was a male-to-male hierarchy, not male-to-women. So if you want to look in a Jewish household about the rights of the firstborn, it was a right for men over men. It wasn't a right for men over women. So it seems slightly odd that he's using that as... Uh, a point in support of his argument. Then he goes on about deception. And this is the bit that really seems out of place unless we put a part of the jigsaw uh, puzzle together from context. But she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. What on earth has Paul brought the whole childbearing thing into the discussion here? Is he, as some have traditionally argued, just saying, look, ladies, you were very, very naughty in the Garden of Eden, and your punishment is that you're going to have babies. But if you keep having babies, God will be kind to you, and he'll allow you to be saved. So stay pregnant. <laughs> so if you want to persevere to heaven, men, you just keep raising those holy hands. Women, keep knocking out them kids, because that's the only way you're going to secure your eternal redemption. Okay, so 
Now, if you were to look at some of the arguments around what Paul is saying here, uh, in fact, that the, the um, Bible Project, which is um, a study resource I find particularly helpful and useful, they talk about a number of different positions, and none of them are the position I'm going to offer to you in a moment. Um, but they talk about how there was a possibility that because women were largely uneducated in that time by comparison to men, that maybe it was because you know, they hadn't spent long enough in schooling to be able to teach. Therefore, if you teach ladies to the same level that you teach men, therefore the problem disappears and women can then lead. That's one argument that's put there. Another argument, the traditional argument, is that actually, no, Paul is saying that there is some sort of hierarchy within creation, and men, whether women like it or not, men are in charge, and women just need to accept that. Now, I don't think that either of those really does justice to what is going on here. And the reason I started this whole discussion about um, this whole discussion about context is because in Ephesus, where Timothy is responsible, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world was present in Ephesus. And it was the temple to the goddess. Artemis. Where have you engaged with Artemis in modern day situations? Wonder Woman. True, true story. I'm not making this up. A few guys are going, I'm going to have to go and watch that now for biblical research. <laughs> Her name is Diana Prince, and the Roman term for Artemis was Diana. So some talk about the temple to Diana, some talk about the temple to Artemis, depending on whether you're speaking to a Greek or a Roman. Greeks, Artemis, Romans, Diana. Now what was interesting about this Artemis, other than she was the inspiration for Wonder Woman, she was supposedly the originator of the Amazonian women, according to their culture. So all those really strong, fierce warrior women of folklore they were, you know, the, they came, she remained a virgin, didn't have any kids, and I'll get onto that in a moment, it's important to note. But they were headed up by Artemis, according to Greco-Roman mythology. So these strong warrior Amazonian women were followers of... The thing about Artemis is that she was, in Greco-Roman mythology, she was, the she was the sister, her brother was Apollo. Apollo and Artemis were the twins of Zeus, who was the principal deity. As the story goes, give you a bit more backdrop here, Zeus was, in mythology, married to a lady called Hera, but he went into a relationship with a lady called Leto. She got pregnant, she had two kids, twins, Apollo and Artemis, represented by the moon, Artemis, and Apollo, the sun, the sun god in Greek and Roman mythology. What's interesting now as we delve a little bit deeper into their story was, twins get born around the same time, yes? Usually. <laughs> Who was born first? Artemis was born first. So you have amongst this Greco-Roman story from mythology, this woman taking this sense of preeminence because she was the firstborn, 
before Apollo. In fact, in the story, she aided her mother in the delivery of her brother Apollo. And because of her incredible midwifery skills that she seemed to come out of the womb with, amazing, isn't it? Them Greeks, they just, they know how to have kids. She became the god of women giving birth. She was basically like the, the kind of patron saint of having kids. Although, actually, she has no kids herself, and she remains a virgin because she didn't want any man, quoting, to have mastery over her. So, in Ephesus, where this dialogue uh, with, with Paul and Timothy is kind of being linked to, you have one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple to the goddess Artemis, or Diana. And she was worshipped as somebody who was this warrior princess who would never be mastered by a man. And she was the firstborn over Apollo, the god of the sun. And she was also the lady who was in charge of protecting women through childbirth. Women would go to the temple of Artemis and ask that they be protected while they gave birth. Because in the ancient world, only four in a hundred people actually lived past the age of 50. The biggest killer of men was war. The biggest killer of women was childbirth. So you can imagine a first century woman going up to the temple, paying a few pounds uh, or shekels or whatever, the currency denarii, to the temple saying, Goddess Artemis, will you deliver me and protect me through childbirth? I don't want to die. Now something is starting to make sense on Paul's choice of argument. He picks the very things to argue that were pertinent to the worship of Artemis. So any woman in that context who was seeking to usurp authority because of her understanding of how uh, uh, divinity worked, where the woman was the firstborn, there she had some, therefore she had some sort of preeminence, that she was somebody who wanted to stand apart from society and actually stand against male patriarchy in some respects, this wild woman who was not going to be conformed by society, but to whom you would go to have protection through childbirth, you can now begin to see why Paul picked out his argument. He's saying to Timothy, for any of those ladies who are in your congregation, who are going to start pulling the Artemis card on you and saying, well, actually, we feel that we should have the leadership because Artemis was born before Apollo. Now, you see, you, 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 we're talking in a time period when they hadn't worked out all the details about who Jesus was. Confuse Apollo with Jesus. And so, because for the rest of the, 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 the text itself, we can see that the principal driving reason that Paul is writing anyway is because there's heresy in the church. There's false teaching. There are people who have done him harm. There was a whole lot of other stuff that Paul was writing into. And he's also saying to Timothy, but actually all those people who were taking their inspiration from Artemis and pulling the firstborn card and pulling the we're not going to have anything told to us by a man card and we're going to go to her for protection through childbirth, Paul has to correct an imbalance in teaching. Was saying, actually, if you want to get funny about it in our story Adam was born first how about that one 
So what Paul is doing, he's correcting a problem teaching in the first century church. Otherwise, this whole giving birth thing doesn't really make a great deal of sense. But it does make a lot of sense when you think some people in the church would have wanted to go to Artemis for protection through childbirth. And Paul can say, well, actually, no, God's going to protect you. He's going to preserve you. He's going to save you through childbirth. He's God over the children that you have, and the protection of your health. Look to him. So I think the selection of material that Paul has there is answered quite neatly when you have this understanding of the teaching of Greco-Roman mythology, particularly with Artemis, Diana, and the things that she was well known for. The things that she was well known for make a lot of sense as to why Paul would have a problem with it. Maybe under other conditions, Paul might say, I forbid a man to take authority over a woman. He must learn quietly in full submission. If there was a problem with a male cult in the area that was causing an issue. Potentially. There's a whole lot of reasons why and why not that might not be a reasonable translation. Okay, some of you go, whoa, hang on. Paul doesn't stop there, though, does he, Dave? He goes on to say this. So, in chapter 3 of Timothy, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. To anyone who aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. Uh-uh. How do we get past that, Dave? It's pretty clear. And in fact, I've heard uh, some sessions recently uh, by a guy called David Pawson, who I, I kind of like by all accounts. And someone asked him, uh, can women be elders? And he said, when they can be the husband of one wife, yes. Now... The reason why I don't feel this is a uh, scripture for appointing elders in general is because if we read down the page, when it talks about deacons, verse 10 of chapter 3, they must also be tested first if they prove uh, blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Verse 12, deacons are to be husbands of one wife. Deacons, too, are said to be husbands of one wife. But we know that the church didn't hold to that because we read Chalcedon and there are a whole lot of other places I could point to in church history where women were appointed as deacons. So either the first, century, well, the first few centuries of the church knew something that Paul was saying or wasn't saying that we're perhaps not privy to. Now, of course, there's, there's an intermix here of stuff which you would say that is a truth for all time, for all people, for whatever. What I'm offering to you is that considering Paul gives the same corrective advice about deacons as he does about elders, but the church didn't obey the stuff about deacons because we know that they appointed them, that maybe the stuff on overseers isn't the same, sorry, is the same to be treated the same as deacons. The trouble with that argument, of course, is that the the, the isn't any record that I've got where women were being appointed as leaders in those first few centuries. And so the challenge to us didn't have the kind of strength and courage to go against it. In fact, Paul, when he's also writing to Timothy, uh, and he talks about how servants shouldn't kick up a fuss with their masters. You think, well, actually, Paul, you're a bit out of touch here. We don't do, <laughs> we don't do servants anymore. You know, we've got organizations that fight against that kind of stuff. 
So there is another argument to suggest that Paul, obviously he's growing a church within the confines of the cultural hierarchies in that day and age. In fact, women weren't at the bottom of the pecking order. Those servants were. And Jesus took on the nature of a servant. So you have these overlapping hierarchies in Greco-Roman culture. They were very patriarchal, though, nevertheless. But Paul doesn't rally the church to try and overthrow the slavery system in Rome. And he doesn't call to overthrow the patriarchy also in Greco-Roman Empire. What was going on there? We don't know. In fact, N.T. Wright is probably, arguably, one of the greatest biblical scholars of the last few hundred years. Says at the end of the day with some of these things, no one is going to be able to tie up their argument to the full satisfaction of the opponents of their argument either way. He says, but at the end of the day, we look at the balance of the evidence and people are going to fall on one side or the other. So for me, I'm comfortable with women being in leadership, in eldership. And I think, taken beyond what Timothy says, I think, think there is this plurality of leadership which is actually designed and intended and revealed through the pages of Genesis where God brings women into this leadership hierarchy that he establishes on the earth. So I'm comfortable with women being in leadership. Now, this is a different debate to whether there is male headship in the home. That's a different debate for a different day. day. Those things are connected, uh, but I can't do justice to that. I haven't really done justice to this in the 45, 50 minutes that we've had. But I think whatever position you come to on this, you have to just be prepared to engage with the material with an open mind and heart to God. Say, God, what are you saying? What are you saying? And if God, if God through the Scriptures teaches us something that we don't like, and that's the clear teaching of Scripture, then we have to accept it. God hasn't got a Bible for everybody. He's got one Bible for everybody, but not a Bible for every individual. Say, well, you don't like this, this, and this, so you have that one. You don't like this, this, and this, you have that one. There are things which are going to hurt and offend and upset us, but they're still nevertheless the truth of Scripture. And Paul was there to go into the church in Ephesus and teach things which were going to cause trouble. They were going to create backlash. They were going to upset certain people. So I have no problem with truth offending and dividing and making people uncomfortable. But we have to look at the balance of the evidence and say, what are we dealing with here? It's interesting for Pentecostalism, who were one of the first to kind of emancipate women in leadership back in sort of the early um, 20th century, in the ni- early 1900s, Women in Azusa Street in, um, in America were operating in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and, and they were thinking, well, gosh, God seems to be quite happy to use these people in the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which are used for the instruction and the building up of the church. How dissimilar is that to leadership? And also issues of race and color as well were dealt with because there was no discrimination on race and color when God was giving out the gifts of the Holy Spirit. A guy called Frank Bartleman, who was a, 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 a history, historian around the time, says the color line has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. And we all say amen to that. 
because the work of the Holy Spirit was showing who he did and didn't discriminate against by the way that he outpoured his spirit on them, which was similar to what Peter saw when the Gentiles were brought into the church in Acts chapter 10. We don't need to get these guys circumcised. They're already doing the stuff. So when we have those kind of experiences in the Holy Spirit and we're trying to make sense of that, what does that mean? God, am I allowed as a woman to... Well, I'm obviously just you know, playing along with this, this story here. As a woman, God, I'm moving in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. I speak in tongues. I pray and I prophesy. And church history tells me I can serve and be appointed into a recognized position of deacon within the local church. The pages of Genesis tell me that you wanted me to stand alongside Adam and serve and have dominion over your creation. And you also say that one day I'm going to reign and rule with you. Could it possibly be that the context which says that I can't be involved in leadership of the church haven't been fully understood? And there we are. So I'm going to leave that with you because I said to Lucas, we're going to land this by quarter past nine. I haven't finished my notes. I was going to talk on here about what did Paul mean by handing people over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme? And how do we, like Timothy, watch our life and our doctrine closely? I'm going to answer those next week because I think any more will just bamboozle you. So... In closing, we have to be true to this. If this has stuff in it that you don't like, learn to like it. (laughs) If this teaches you something that makes you uncomfortable, then be uncomfortable. Because this is the dividing line between truth and error, right here. Right here. And if you want to watch your life and your doctrine closely, read this. Know it. Absorb it. When Moses came down Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments written down, that's the kind of first example we have of God's uh, truth in written form. There was fire and smoke. There was kind of this heavenly celebration and pomp and drama about God putting his truth into print. Moses bringing the text down from the mountain. Some of us can't bring the text off our bedside table we have to love this thing and we can't allow debates about context just keep searching through history to look for something that supports our argument and then use that as a way to kind of leverage support for what we want the text to say but neither can we ignore stuff which helps us to get a better understanding of what the text is saying Context is not there to change the text, it's to help us to understand the text. So there are things that we find easy to accept, things that we find difficult. And if I felt the Bible clearly teaches that women should never be elders, that's what I would stand on. Three times a day, that's what I do. But at the end of the day, we're trying our best to be responsible with the experiences we have in the Holy Spirit. The text of Scripture... And what Paul is speaking and trying to do when he instructs his fellow leaders into how to manage very, very difficult situations in the local churches that he led. So I trust this just helps you take a little bit of a different step along the journey. You may disagree with me. You may agree with me. That's fine. We can do this. I'm not giving you the position of the church. I'm giving you what I think about this text. But allow yourself to reflect and think and to pray on those things. And God will lead you into truth. Let's pray. 
We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarranty.com.